For the Old Testament lesson this morning, I'm going to substitute the reading from Exodus 17 for a reading from Psalm 46. This was a text that the men studied at the breakfast yesterday, and it speaks very pointedly to God being our refuge and strength in our time of need. We read from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is the epistle lesson from Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not, dis- does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as I mentioned before, this will also serve as the basis for my sermon this morning. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in the spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Now, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the coronavirus pandemic is not the first pandemic experienced by Americans. For example, in 1918, the influential pandemic known as the Spanish flu killed 50 million people around the world including 675,000 Americans. 675,000 Americans. From late September 1918 through early November of that same year, the first peak in that spread of that virus, cities around the United States banned worship services, among other public gatherings. The Boston Globe declared Sunday, September 29th, as the quietest Sunday Boston had ever saw. There was less for the citizens to do, probably, than any Sunday since the old Puritan days. The Grand Rapids Herald doubted that anyone suffered more from the state ban on public worship than the members of the city's 17 Christian Reformed churches, who, quote, have been trained from childhood to regard regular church attendance as natural in their lives as eating breakfast. There were a variety of responses from church leaders and laity to this ban, to these bans. The Methodist revivalist George R. Stewart is reported to have said, we have had the strange experience of a churchless Sabbath. The pandemic should convince intelligent Christians 
to trust science rather than seeking to tempt God to perform a miracle in the preservation of our health. Christians do not discount their faith in the omnipotence of their God, he said, by keeping their bodies and homes and streets clean and non-germ producing, by using care in traffic and travel, accepting vaccination, sprays and disinfectants, and keeping God's own laws of health and life. Any other course is the fruit of ignorance and false teaching. So end his opinion. There were other church leaders who defied the ban and who held worship services, sometimes experiencing widespread indignation from people within the community. And there were even some who defied the ban who were thrown into jail. Others got a little more creative. Some conducted open-air worship services. Others engaged in what they called home worship. Others had their sermons, pastors had their sermons, published in local newspapers. And the clergy worked around the clock in order to bring pastoral care and sick calls to the, to the people who were in need. And even the laity got into the act as some of them began to take care of what was known as epidemic orphans, giving them not only food and clothing, but supplying healthy recreation and instruction. Today, there is a widespread response by churches across the land in response to the threat of the coronavirus and, and based upon recommendations that are coming from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's no outright ban on public gatherings of at least less than 100 people, and yet some congregations across our land have chosen not to meet for this weekend in worship services, and they've done so voluntarily. Other congregations are worshiping virtually. That is, their service is being streamed on the Internet so that their members who are sitting at home can participate with them. Some pastors are having their sermons posted online, and my sermon will be posted on our website as per usual after this service today. Other congregations have chosen to offer multiple service times recommending that their members worship at various times that it's offered so that they can get under the 100-person threshold. And still others are organizing small group home worship. Some are choosing to meet as, quote-unquote, usual, like we are, yet with some slight and some might consider some significant changes to our service. What all of these responses indicate is that worship, public worship, is valued by Christians. That is true even of those congregations that have made the very difficult decision to not meet for worship this weekend. Since the day of Pentecost, Christians have gathered for worship during times of political, public, and pandemic upheaval. To gather as the body of Christ to receive God's grace and peace through the ministry of preaching and the sacraments and to offer up corporate prayers have been as important, if not maybe even more important, to God's people than being inoculated with a vaccine. Worshiping our Lord in public services are one of the core values that we as members of St. James Lutheran Church hold. It's not just the Christian reform who have been trained from childhood to regard regular church attendance as natural in their lives as eating breakfast. 
For us, attending the divine service is essential to who we are as God's people. In today's gospel lesson, Jesus speaks to the true nature of worship, which is instructive for not only why we value worshiping our Lord, but also how we might respond when we face pandemics and possibly even short-term bans on our own worship gatherings. Listen to Jesus' lively interaction with the Samaritan woman once again. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The Jews and the Samaritans had an ongoing debate over the proper place of worship. The Samaritans claimed that Mount Gerizim is the right place for worship. The Jews asserted that the proper place for worship is at Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But surprisingly, Jesus claims that neither Mount Gerizim nor Solomon's temple in Jerusalem have a future role in the worship of God's people. Woman, he says, believe me, a time is coming, and it is actually upon you even now, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, in the new order that Jesus inaugurates, arguments over place of worship are out of date and meaningless. It's not where the place that we worship, whether that be Mount Gerizim, Solomon's Temple, a basilica, a cathedral, a sanctuary like this, our home, a coffee shop, a school gym, a prison cell, a straw hut, or under a lean-to by a river. The place where we worship is not important. What is important is who we worship and how we worship. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans are not only guilty of worshiping on Mount Gerizim, so to speak, but they're also guilty of rejecting the writings of the prophets and the Psalms and the historical books of the Old Testament. They've adopted a syncretism of worshiping false deities along with the ancestral God of the Jewish faith. In other words, the Samaritans are guilty of worshiping a false god. The Jews, on the other hand, for all their unfaithfulness, know God's plan of salvation from the writings of Moses and the prophets. 
And they know that the Messiah and the salvation that he brings will come from them, that he'll be a descendant of Israel. And Jesus is that promised Messiah. He's their Savior. Jesus uses this discussion, this debate that he's having with this woman about the temple worship to teach her that he is the temple. Jesus is, did you hear that, the new temple that arises to replace even Solomon's temple. This assertion of Jesus is upsetting even to the Jewish religious leaders. If we were to look back to John chapter 2, we would have heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And then John adds, and the temple that he had spoken of was his body. These words of Jesus are even used against Jesus later on when he's on trial. And they're looking for a reason to execute him. They remind him of these words and say, he said he would destroy this temple, Solomon's temple, and rebuild it in three days. But no, he's really speaking about himself. So you see, Jesus is really our temple. Jesus is our place of worship. Did you hear that? Jesus is our place of worship. Jesus is the object of our worship. His life of obedience, his crucifixion, and his resurrection are the focus of our preaching and our prayers and our hymnody. It's Jesus who speaks words of forgiveness to us when we're contrite in heart for our sins. It's Jesus who washes us clean in holy baptism. It's Jesus who speaks to us through the words of the pastor and through the anthems that are sung and the hymns that are proclaimed. It's Jesus who dines with us at the Lord's table. And it's Jesus who connects with us and ministers to us in any number of locations. What is his promise to you and me? Where two or three are gathered in his name, in my name, he says, there I will be present. Every place is hallowed ground where and when Jesus is present. His presence is not confined to a temple built by the hands of men, nor are those who worship him bound in mere forms and ceremonies and rituals. Jesus says in our text, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. When we gather for worship, wherever that might be, the Spirit of the Lord ministers to us through His appointed means of grace focusing our hearts and our minds on the truth, who is none other than Jesus Christ. And so while it is that the place isn't all that important, the fact is that Jesus chooses to meet with us and minister to us through certain means. He promises to meet us in his word, doesn't he? He promises to meet up with us in holy baptism. He promises to speak to us through his preached word, And he promises to be present with us at the Lord's table. The Samaritan woman has some serious issues going on in her life that are separating her from the Lord. 
In addition to worshiping a false god, there is reason that she is drawing water in the heat of the day. Listen to the following conversation between Jesus and this woman. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've actually had five husbands. And the one you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This poor suffering soul needs cleansing. She thirsts for the forgiveness of the living God and desires to become clean of the shame that makes her feel so filthy. It's like she's saying to Jesus in this conversation, but where do I go to find this true God who will wash me, who will forgive me? In John 4, she says, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. It's like she's longing for this Messiah. It's like a confession of sin of sorts. And it's then that Jesus says to her very clearly, and he does this nowhere else that I'm aware of, he clearly articulates who he is. He says, I am that one, the one speaking to you. He is saying, I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. And the, Jesus opens the floodgates of living water that cleanses her of her sin. Like the Samaritan woman, we gather in worship to confess our sins to Jesus. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We come to a place like this, but it doesn't have to be this place. But we come to a place like this so that we might confess our sins to our God. For we know that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that what he did earlier in this service? Today, as we confessed our sins, he announced, Jesus announced through me that our sins are forgiven. It's like he opened up the valve and all the water, God's cleansing water, washed out over us. If you're listening to this message online, with someone else, I encourage you to press the pause button right now and do the following. Say, Almighty God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us our sins and lead us to everlasting life. Amen. And then take a moment turn to one another and say, in the name of the triune God, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, your Savior. Amen. If you happen to be listening to this message by yourself at home, then make the same confession and hear these words of absolution. In the name of the triune God, your sins are forgiven. 
through Jesus Christ, your Savior. Amen. It's like Jesus is saying to each and every one of us through those words of absolution, I am the one speaking to you. I am your Savior. Yes, we value worship because we're able to confess our sins and receive God's declaration of forgiveness. But we also value worship because we come to be refreshed and renewed by the the word that is proclaimed. Jesus said to the woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, give me that water. And he gives her the water, doesn't he? Not the water from the well, but from the water that wells up to eternal life. Just a few chapters later in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter, Jesus says, On that last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Yes, we come and we gather and worship so that we might, because we are thirsty, spiritually thirsty, Longing for God's love and forgiveness. Longing to have God speak some word of comfort and peace and hope to us. Longing to relieve us of our worries and our fears and our guilt and our shame. And Jesus speaks. And the water, the living water is poured out over us. And we're refreshed and we're renewed. It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of the mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his word all day and night. For that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And so we gather to worship, and we value worship, because there the Lord gives us that living water. But we also value worship because it's an opportunity for us to have a dinner date with our Savior, to dine with our Lord. If we read on in John chapter 4, we're told that the woman returns to Sychar, and she tells the people of Sychar that, I think I've met the one who's the Savior of the world. And then we're told in verse 40, so, when the, so the Samaritans came to him and they urged Jesus to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now during those two days that Jesus stayed with the, with the people of Sychar, he spent many hours talking and teaching them about who he is, that he's the savior of the world. No doubt unfolding for them how he is the fulfillment of many of the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. But he also ate with them. He dined with them. And as he did so, he did teach. And they came to believe in him as savior. We value worship. We value getting together like this so that we can come to the dining room table, whether it's up here, here, or somewhere else. And Jesus feeds us, doesn't he? He feeds us with his very body and blood. 
He assures us that our sins are forgiven. He renews us, He refreshes us, and He reminds us of the eternal feast that we have in the new heavens and new earth. Psalm 46, which I read to you earlier today, talks about God being our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. But the words I really like to focus in on is that the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And I don't know about you, but when I come to the Lord's Supper and receive it, those words are so very real for me. The Lord Almighty, Jesus, is with me. He's with you. And he's feeding us his very body and blood which was given into death on a cross for us. And that's why we can say that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Because we know that he's always with us and that he feeds and nourishes us through his word and through the sacraments. I mean, can you think of a more intimate, encouraging way that God is with us than how we receive God's presence in that sacred meal. And so we value gathering together for worship. The Samaritan woman discovers that Jesus is the Messiah. He reveals himself to her. And instead of keeping that to herself, what does she do? She returns to the very people in the community who shunned her and mocked her. And she returned to them to share the good news. She went to them and said, I think I found the one. And we're told in verse 39 of John 4 that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Christians share the love of Christ in word and deed. And this too is an act of worship. In A.D. 249 to 262, the Western civilization was being devastated by one of the deadliest pandemics in history. Though the exact cause of the plague is uncertain, the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of its outbreak. And as a result, many of the pagan Romans were fleeing to the hills to get away from the sickness as much as possible But the Christians, they stayed behind. And they were known for their compassion and benevolence to the sick and the dying, the anxious and the grieving, even placing themselves right in the midst of death itself. A century later, the Emperor Julian attempted to curb the growth of Christianity after the spread of the plague by leading a campaign to establish pagan charities that mirrored the work of Christians in this realm. In A.D. 362, Julian sent a letter complaining that the Hellenists needed to match the Christians in virtue, showing the recent growth of Christianity and their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness in their lives. Elsewhere he wrote, It is for a disgrace that the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. I share this story with you because you see this too is an act of worship. Worship is not just something that takes place 
around God's word and sacraments, but worship in the widest sense is Christians offering themselves up in service to one another and to even those who do not share our beliefs and our love for our Lord. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. And so, yes, we value worship, coming to a place like this, meeting together, wherever it might be, maybe even online, so that then we can go out into the world to be that living sacrifice for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to go and minister to people who are, who are fearful, who are hurting, who are sick, who are dying, who are grieving. And we bring them the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And even as we go through an uncertain time like this that we're experiencing, there are neighbors around us, there are family, there are friends, there's co-workers, and Jesus sends us to them. Not to hide in our homes, but he sends us to them to serve them, to help them, to assist them, to bring them God's word of peace and hope, to remind them that God is their refuge and strength and an ever-present help in their time of trouble. Now it does need to be said that solo worship or online worship does not replace the need for regular corporate worship. It may be good to have time by ourselves in worship with the Lord, and it is good for us to have time with the Lord in worship by ourselves. And it is a great blessing that many people today can gather online with one another and hear the word of God proclaimed. Je Jesus hallows that moment too with his presence. But ultimately we need and we desire to be with one another, don't we? And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yes, we gather together to encourage one another, to raise our voices in song, to pray in unison, to support one another. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. The gate is the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. We are so blessed to be able to gather in a place like this to worship our Lord. But the place isn't really all that important. We can also do it in our homes. We can worship the Lord on the internet. We can worship the Lord in a coffee shop. We can worship the Lord in groups of two and three. And Jesus will be present. And Jesus will minister to us. 
and he will strengthen us and promise us that I am with you. And so, friends, we don't know what will be in the future. We don't know what decisions might be made by our governing leaders. We may be banned from worshiping together, as it was the case in 1918. But you know what? Wherever we worship, our Lord Jesus Christ will be present. That's his promise to you and me. Amen.